0: Please open a Bible first to Matthew chapter 5 on page 963, and then we'll go to Exodus 21 on page 73. We actually have two passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Things are a little different than what the bulletin says. So the first passage, Matthew 5 on page 963, and then we'll turn back to Exodus 21. Uh, What we're going to be reading today in Exodus and then over the next several weeks is passages from the collection of Israel's laws. And in a number of ways, that's quite strange, that we would gather together for worship and read a series of laws and reflect on them together. Uh, we went through Deuteronomy in the evening service, but I don't think I've ever preached a morning service on any specific laws apart from the Ten Commandments. Uh, and I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon preached in Sunday morning on A section of the Old Testament law. So it's a little bit of a strange thing to do. But Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. A fair amount of that all Scripture is made up of legal material. And so our basic assumption as a church is that it is God breathed. And therefore profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. That doesn't mean we work through the laws as slowly and in the same detail we might the book of Philippians. uh, We were in Philippians for the better part of a school year, and it's about the same length as the law collection here in Exodus that we're going to be looking at. But we are going to look at these laws. First, though, I want to back up, uh, and I just—I guess I'll apologize up front that this morning's a little bit of a mess, that I had two main points that I was working on all week, and then as I was working on those, I was thinking there's also some ideas we need to have in place, some principles for how to read these laws well. And then as I started integrating that, I realized I had enough for two or three sermons, and so it's kind of, we'll we'll see how it works. I'll keep an eye on my watch um, and try not to take advantage of you here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. On page 963, beginning at verse 17, and I'll read through verse 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passed away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now turning back to Exodus chapter 21, We're just going to read the first 11 verses. That's found on page 73 if you're using the church Bible. Exodus 21, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 11. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is God's word. We kind of have two big things we need to wrestle with here. First is how do we read laws, biblical laws in general, and how do they function for us Christians today? And the second is that the laws around slavery in specific present a major, maybe we'd call it apologetic issue. It's a point where contemporary people point to scripture and say, what kind of God is this who allows slavery? Uh, Do do you Christians even know what's in your Bible? It promotes slavery. How can this be a good thing? And so we need to talk about how to read legal text as Christian scripture, and then we need to wrestle with the substantive issue of what do we do with these sorts of laws regarding slaves. So first, and kids who are taking notes, uh, if all goes well, there'll be three principles for reading the law, and then there'll be one main point. And if you want to just get the one main point, that's fine. But if we don't get to the one main point, your notes will be pretty thin this week. So that's decide for yourself, kids, how you want to handle that. I trust you to do good work there. Three guidelines for reading legal text from scripture. I want to avoid uh, pitfalls or mistakes that Christians have made in reading and applying the Old Testament law to our contemporary lives. The first guideline is this. The Old Testament law isn't discarded by the New Testament. The Old Testament law isn't discarded by the New Testament. It's not done away with. It hasn't been surpassed. It's not, you know, no longer active. One basic mistake is assuming that Jesus or the New Testament in some way or another make the Old Testament law irrelevant for Christians. Now, Christ has indeed fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to bother with it anymore. Christ fulfilled the law, and so the relationship between God's people and God's law has changed. We're in a different situation than Israel was. And the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 that you can read about makes clear that Gentile believers, which I think most of us in this room would count as, stand in a different relationship to the law than Jewish believers do. But nevertheless, as we read from Matthew 5, Jesus teaches his followers, don't think I came to abolish the law, to get rid of it. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's a lot going on there. Uh, The language is a little bit strange. He's saying, I came, uh, it came into the world. That's a weird way to describe a normal birth. And he's hinting saying, I am... Uh, god himself come into the world for a specific purpose and what is that purpose not to get rid of the law but to fulfill it truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota the smallest greek letter not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished whoever does them that is the laws the commandments and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven what's jesus saying He's saying he came into the world on a divine mission to fulfill the law and the prophets. He lives the perfect kind of life that the law and prophets describe. That's part of fulfilling the law. But he also comes as the Messiah, the prophet, priest, king, that the law and prophets both look forward to. And he gives his life so that God and humans might be reconciled. And so he brings the law to its proper end that humans live rightly with God. But Jesus does not say, one more time, that since he has fulfilled the law, therefore the law passed away. Rather, he says, since I came to fulfill the law, therefore nothing passes away from the law. Indeed, whoever does the commandments of the law and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus says that every scribe that's an expert in the law Who is trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out treasures new and old. Jesus is saying this is the ideal training you could have be an expert in the Old Testament law and learn the path of discipleship that I teach, and then you can bring it all together. Uh, And it's interesting, that's kind of a picture of Paul, isn't it? that he studied as a Pharisee, he became an expert in the Old Testament law, but then he also came to know Christ personally and was trained as a disciple. And so then he's able to bring forth treasures old and new. And most of our New Testament is, uh, in terms of the number of letters, is written by Paul. So the first thing that we need to see is that the Old Testament law isn't discarded by the New Testament. But second, the Old Testament law isn't always God's highest ideal. The Old Testament law isn't always God's highest ideal. The opposite mistake is to think that the Old Testament law describes God's highest goal for human life. But we'll see in the coming weeks, the Old Testament laws are themselves a mixed bag. There are these passages that point to the highest ideals. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as I am holy. Those are pointing to God's highest ideals. But in many other cases, the specific laws are not intended to describe God's highest ideal for human life, but rather to stop bad things from getting worse. Or to meet Israel where they're at and to try to move them incrementally towards God's vision for human flourishing. So some parts of the law do point at the final destination, but most of the law is saying here's the next couple steps from where you're at to get forward. To see what I mean, let's look for a minute at Matthew Chapter 19. If you want to keep a finger in Exodus 21 and flip over there, it's on page 979. Matthew 19 on page 979. In this passage, some Pharisees come and they test Jesus by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce anyone's wife or your wife for any cause? Uh, We could paraphrase it Is it lawful to divorce on any pretext or grounds whatsoever? Uh, This question is still relevant about who can get divorced, what justifies a divorce, (laughs) but I don't want to focus on the content of Jesus' answer, but rather the strategy he adopts, just for a moment here. See how Jesus responds. First, he begins not with a specific passage from the law, but rather goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. To answer the question, Jesus goes back to God's highest ideal for marriage, that it would be two joined together and not separated. So he goes back to creation, to God's ultimate purposes for marriage and human life. Uh, but then the Pharisees push back. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That is to say, how should we make sense of the various laws of, on divorce in the Old Testament? And Jesus responds Because of the hardness of your heart, or because of the hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's Jesus saying? He's saying God's highest ideal for marriage is that it would be permanent, but the law recognizes that we live in a fallen, broken world where those highest ideals don't always work out. And God doesn't stand aloof from the broken, messy, real world. Rather, God is always condescending to us. He always comes down to us and meets us where we're at in the midst of broken messiness. And so Jesus says, in the light of, of our hard-heartedness, God gives laws regulating divorce to protect those involved. It's not saying that God's ideal for marriage is that it's treated as some sort of a disposable thing that you can break apart whenever you feel like it. His ideal is for a permanent institution. And yet, God's law recognizes that the best case scenario isn't always where we find ourselves, and so it tries to stop a bad situation from getting worse. Applying this more generally, when we read individual laws, we always need to be asking, what are God's values and priorities that are in the background? How are they applied to this specific situation? What's God trying to do with these laws? Who's he trying to protect? What's he trying to promote? What's he trying to discourage? So God condescends to Israel, this group of just freed slaves, and he meets them where they're at and through his law is trying to move them towards where he wants them to be, towards human flourishing. God isn't distant. He doesn't keep his hands clean. But rather, he stoops down and gets involved in the messy, nutty situations we find ourselves in and tries to give direction for those. Uh, In a sense, then we could say the law itself sort of foreshadows the incarnation. God condescending, coming down into our lives, meeting us where we're at, and trying to bring us to flourishing. The third principle or guideline then is that the Old Testament law isn't separable from Israel's life. The Old Testament law isn't separable from Israel's life. If we're looking through the laws and we're asking what's God's value or priority here? What's the principle it's teaching? There's a temptation to pull that principle then out of the Old Testament and say, we don't really need the specific laws anymore because now we know what the value is. But Uh, In the church, uh, when the Old Testament was received as Christian scripture, Christians never tried to rewrite the Old Testament in a Christian manner. Uh, We never revised the Old Testament as Christians, but rather we accepted the Old Testament as Israel's scripture as part of Christian scripture. And so the law is always tied up to the specificity of Israel's own life. I'm sorry, I'm saying this kind of abstractly. What I'm trying to say is that in the story of the world, God calls Abraham and then Abraham's descendants, and he makes a covenant with them, and that's part of his plan to redeem all things. That plan moves forward, and it sets the context and trajectory for Christ and for the reconciliation between God and mankind, but we can't just get rid of that specific covenant between God and Israel. It still is an irrevocable part of our scriptures. And so we're always reasoning by analogy. We're saying, here's what God did with Israel in that period. And by analogy, here's how these laws might apply to our situation. Uh, if you've been here for the evening services, we saw a little bit of this happening in First Timothy. Remember, uh, Paul cites the law about not muzzling an ox while it's eating, or while it's uh, threshing, saying that the, 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 uh, the ox deserves to be fed by the work it's doing. And then he draws an analogy between that, and he says, likewise, ministers deserve to be fed by the work they're doing. So he's saying, here's how it worked in Israel, and here, by analogy, is how it extends, Uh, for eternity the law is part of christian scripture but the law is always in this shape that it was specifically given to israel Um, and so we always have to think okay how did this work out in israel's life and by analogy how does it apply to ours this does have all sorts of questions about the relationship between jews and gentile christians between the church and synagogue and actually dave klein is going to preach next sunday morning for us and address some of those specific issues related to the ministry he does and so i'll just leave that there The three guidelines then are the New Testament doesn't do away with the Old Testament. Uh, Well, I got to look at them now. The Old Testament laws isn't discarded by the New Testament. The Old Testament law isn't always God's highest ideal. And the Old Testament law isn't separable from Israel's life. Let's turn then, kids, to the one main point. That's God cares about the down and out. God cares about the down and out. Let's turn to these slave laws and ask, what is going on here? And what I want to argue is that it shows us that God cares about the down and out. The Old Testament laws in themselves are strange enough that maybe we never have paused to ask, why is this where the laws begin? Of all the different things that could be addressed, maybe murder seems like a big problem. Maybe that would be where we'd start our laws. Protecting individual rights, maybe that's where we'd start our laws. Israel's laws begin with how servants are to be treated. It's a bit like a board meeting for a company or a staff meeting starting, and the first item of business is to talk about the lowest paid employee in the company. Uh, I'm assuming that's not how most businesses run their board meetings, by focusing on how the janitor is doing. Uh, And yet that's how God starts these rules for Israel. Uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you, Moses, shall set before Israel. And the rules begin with the treatment of slaves. Why? Because God uh, cares about those on the margins. He cares about the down and out. He cares about the most vulnerable. He cares about those who are often overlooked. In the ancient world, as well as the modern world, slaves are all often treated as subhuman and denied basic rights. But our God cares about the down and out. He looks after those who are overlooked. And that in and of itself is good news uh, for us this morning because many of us are kind of the down and out on the margins. To understand these laws, first we need to ask, what is a slave? The Hebrew word that's used here is much broader than our English word slave. Uh, The word used to describe uh, what this word slave, that ESV translates as slave here, it's used at the beginning of Exodus to describe what Israel was doing in Egypt. Uh, That was pretty bad, right? It was slavery like we think of it in the modern world. But this word can also describe just basic employees who work on a farm or, or general term for workers Uh, The consistent sense is it's it's labor for someone else. Okay, so anytime you're working for someone else, if it's uh, uh, an employer or if it's full-on slavery like they had in Egypt, that all gets covered by the same word. Uh, The law here describes a fixed period of time, and so it's clear that what Exodus is referring to as uh, some form of indentured servitude But I think slave is not the right word to use because it brings up images in our mind that don't really apply. It's a bit more like uh, if you do watch the Super Bowl this afternoon, the professional athletes sign these contracts where they have to play for a certain team for a certain number of years. And that's kind of the idea here is for six years you would sign a contract where you work for one person. What is not being envisioned here is anything like modern North American and European slavery. Uh, in Exodus 21, 16, which I hoped we were going to get to, but we didn't, um, uh, one of the laws says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay, so if that law were consistently applied, it would have forbidden everything that happened in the North American slave trade. You couldn't kidnap someone, couldn't transport them, you couldn't sell them, you couldn't own them. Uh, if they if they were kidnapped. Those would all be capital offenses. Likewise, a bit later, uh, Exodus 21, 26 to 27 says, if a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall, let the, uh, l- he shall set them free because of his tooth. Uh, basic principle is saying if you cause bodily injury, you must set your servant free because they're not yours to do with as you see fit. What is then being envisioned here? If it's not slavery like we know from American history, what is being envisioned? The most likely situation is that someone would have fallen into debt and are un- that they're unable to repay or perhaps their business or farm has collapsed and so they're not able to provide for themselves, in which case they would sell themselves in order to meet their obligations to pay off their debts. Now, going back to the kind of guidelines we had earlier, it's not God's highest ideal that some people would fall into crushing debt, nor is it God's highest ideal that some people would sell themselves to others. But God recognizes that in the real life, in the broken world that we live in, it often falls short of uh, of his ideal for flourishing. And so these laws provide protection, making sure that those who fall into debt or destitution have a way out. It sounds extreme, I admit, but in some ways, if you stop to think about it, it may be better than our current situation. Okay? Imagine if our society was set up in a way so that, for example, someone who has $100,000 of school debt could sign a six year contract, have room and board provided, and at the end of that contract, their debt would be uh, discharged. Or uh, someone underwater on their mortgage, that they could sign a six year contract, have room and board during that time, and at the end of it, have that debt discharge. And in, in some ways, it might provide a better way out of debt than our current um, somewhat opaque system. Certainly it's more just than the debt bondage that uh, Wikipedia says up to 20 million people around the world live in today, that they have debt that they can't pay back, so then they get enslaved and are trapped in an endless cycle. Well, let's look then at the specific laws here. Okay, what we're talking about is not slavery like North American slavery, but indentured servitude. And what are the laws that we're given? Moses, or God rather, through Moses, lays out two basic principles, one in verse 2, one in verse 7, and then each of those principles is further developed by four specific stipulations, each of which you'll see is introduced with the word if. The first basic principle is when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. Okay? God cares about the down and out, so he provides a way for them to get rid of debt that they can't pay off otherwise and to be provided for. And he also ensures that their debt doesn't lead them to be forced into permanent servitude. Okay? It's limited for six years, and then they are set free with no further payment required. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, actually, when you set them free, give them generous gifts to help them get started. Then four specific stipulations are addressed. First, what if the man's single when he enters into this servitude? Well, that's simple enough. He'll also be single when he leaves. Second, what if he's married when he becomes an indentured servant? Does his wife remain indentured or does she leave with him? And it says she leaves with him. Third, then, what if the master gives his wife, uh, his servant, a wife, and they have children? In that case, the wife and children remain in service to the master. Now, admittedly, that's quite jarring, but we need to consider several things. Uh, The master can't force his servant to enter into this marriage. Uh, The servant presumably enters into the marriage willingly, knowing how many years he has left, knowing his own situation. Uh, Moreover, to provide a wife, the master would have had to pay a bride price to the wife's family. So it's an investment on his part Uh, Sort of along the lines that we're going to see in verse 7. And finally, it doesn't say that the marriage or family is somehow dissolved by the man being set free. It's still his wife and children, but he's now free to work as he wants to. And presumably at some point in the future could even redeem his wife and children. Again, it doesn't sound like our highest ideal that they would be separated in this way. Uh, And yet God's trying to stop bad things from getting worse. Fourth, then, what if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free? What do you do then? He says, I've got a good life here, a good thing going, I want to stay. What should be done? In that case, his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And in case you're worried that this means these really large holes in the ear, the same word could mean like a sort of knitting needle, so a smaller hole, but it's a a very visible mark that he belongs to this master. We might be suspicious of the power dynamics. Does he really love his master or he just wants to stay with his wife and kids? And those kinds of questions uh, admittedly arise. But again, the rules are trying to stop things from getting worse, not expressing the best of all possible worlds. The second basic principle in verse seven then is when a man sells his daughter as a maidservant, she shall not go out as the servants do, uh, the male servants do. Our church Bibles, it's really not the best translation here. It translates it all as slave, um, but I don't think the men should be called slave. Probably servant works better. But the word used here for the daughter is a totally different root. Something like maid servant or house servant is better, housemaid. The basic principle is that for daughters being sold into this sort of situation, the six-year limit doesn't apply for reasons that hopefully will become clear in just a moment. Again, we got to keep before our eyes, that God's highest ideal for human flourishing is not men selling their daughters off to other masters. But the law recognizes that in our broken world, situations arise where parents can't provide for their children, and so these alternative arrangements are made. The reason why the six-year limit doesn't apply should become clear from the first specific stipulation. See there in verse 8, what if the girl doesn't please her master who has designated her for himself. The scenario seems to be that the the master has paid the father a bride pli- price plus additional payment with the intention of marrying this girl. And it's saying, okay, but while they're betrothed before they actually marry, what if he changes his mind? Then what should happen? In that case, he should allow someone else to redeem her. He shouldn't hold her in this in- ambiguous situation indefinitely. She ought to have the opportunity to marry, and moreover, he certainly does not have the right to sell her as a slave to foreigners. She's not simply his possession to do with as he sees fit. Rather, it says the master has, in some ways, broken faith with her. He's failed her by not marrying her. So she's not his possession. Second, what if the master designates her to be married to his son? Since the master paid for her, can he still treat her as his property? Uh, by no means. Rather, he should treat her like a daughter, like his own daughter, with the utmost propriety. Uh, the sense that's going on here is saying: uh, just because you paid for her doesn't mean you can take advantage of her. She's not your plaything. She's to be treated with dignity and honor as a, a daughter, as your son's wife. Third, what if the master marries the maidservant and then takes another wife? Again, we see have to see this distinction between God's highest ideals and what the law allows. God's goal from creation was one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship, but the Old Testament law never actually forbids polygamy. Um, It's it's just not one of the things that it stops from happening at that point, even though it's not God's highest ideal. But if you read through the Old Testament, every single description of a polygamous situation you can find depicts it as disastrous. Think of Sarah and Hagar, it's not a good situation there. Think of uh, Jacob and his wives and their um, concubines, it's, it's not a good situation there. David and his wives, Solomon and his wives, on down the list, Elkanah, uh, Penina, Hannah. Every time you have multiple wives in a family, it's just not a good situation. You might wonder, why did it even happen? Probably it's a sort of um, surrogate pregnancy mechanism, certainly that's what we see in Jacob's family. Um, but all that to say, what happens... Uh, If this master does marry another woman, Uh, what the law says, the rule says he must not diminish her food, her clothing, or the phrase literally means her conjugal rights. She has a right to be provided for, to provision, to shelter, and to intimacy and children. Fourth, then what if the master fails to provide these things? Then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. If he fails to provide for her needs, her food, shelter, and intimacy, she's immediately a free woman. He's failed her. Do you see what's happening here then? Uh, To start with, I mean, it's not good to say someone would have to sell their daughter because they can't provide for her. But God's rules begin by addressing this broken situation where parents are unable to provide for their daughter and so sell her off. And yet God cares for the down and out. He meets them where they're at. He provides these rules to stop things from getting worse. And by the end, this bought woman who was sold to another master has the right to food, clothing, intimacy, children, and if the master doesn't provide it, she's actually set free. If you really think it through, it's quite a remarkably high view of women that's encoded in the law here, saying she has the rights to all these things and can go free if they're not provided for her. Okay, so the slavery laws, it's dealing with kind of humanity at its worst. This is not the ideal that people would fall into debt and have to become servants. And yet what we see consistently is that God cares for the down and out and that he provides laws and rules to stop bad situations from getting worse and to actually move them forward. God cares about the down and out, and so he condescends and comes into that messy situation and works to make it better. And actually the rules concerning male slavery provide a picture of this good news. At the beginning of Exodus, remember Israel is in bondage in Egypt. It's oppressive slavery. that's not good for them. He's, he's. They're being beaten and actually their children are being killed. It's a horrible situation. And the first law says you can't serve anyone, whether they're a good master or not, for more than six years. That's the maximum that someone would be forced into this sort of indentured contract. So it's saying... If your master's oppressive, there's a limit, six years. But then do you see where those end in verse five and six? It envisions a scenario where a servant would say, I love my master, and so I want to stay with him forever. And it's a picture of the dynamic of the book of Exodus as a whole, that it begins with slavery that has to be brought to an end because it's oppressive. And yet God's saying, come and serve me. And when you serve me following my rules, you'll actually say, I love this master. He's a master I want to serve forever. Serving him is true freedom. So the laws actually paint a little picture of us here of the movement of God coming into this bad situation in Egypt, rescuing them, bringing them to Mount Sinai, and giving them a good law, uh, serving a good master who indeed they love. And that whole dynamic then keeps pointing farther forward in the scriptures because God's Uh, It's his very character, his nature to condescend and to come down into messy, broken situations to try and bring reconciliation. And that's what happens in the incarnation, that God comes down into our world in all of its messy brokenness. Paul says in in Philippians 2 that he took on the very form of a servant. He took on, he became a servant himself, not to discharge his own debt, but to discharge our debt. This uh, girl who's not loved anymore, it said she, she let her be redeemed. That's a picture of us, the unloved bride who God comes in the flesh to redeem, to buy back for himself. And so we see that it's the same God consistently throughout who cares about the down and out, who enters into broken, messy situations, and is trying to make it better. And so I think as we read these laws together, it's going to challenge those who are Christians as well. Is we can be Christian and hold to our high ideals that God's Word teaches us, and yet need to enter into broken, messy situations that aren't as good as we'd hope. Uh, you can read accounts from 19th, 20th century missionaries who go to tribes that practice polygamy, and that's not an easy question. You can tell them we'll quit practicing polygamy, but what do you tell to a man who has multiple wives? Do you just say we'll divorce all but one? Of course, that's not right. He's, The missionaries tended to say, no, keep providing for them, but teach your children to only marry one woman. But sometimes I wonder if we modern Christians can deal with that kind of messiness of, uh, you know, that's just not the right kind of situation. It's not what God's ideal is. Uh, And yet God's law tells us it's good to enter into that brokenness, try and move things along. Well, I promise to keep track of my watch. There we are. We made it through the slave laws and some guidelines. We'll keep coming back to those guidelines for reading the law, and then we'll look next week. Uh, at another chunk of law. Let us pray now. Gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you care about the down and out. We thank you that you not only care about those on the margins, but you yourself came into our world, not in a throne room or a palace, but on the margins. You yourself came to uh, a maidservant as is described here, and were born in a poor family, that you have lived the perfectly righteous life that fulfills the law, and that you gave yourself not just to discharge our debt, but so that we might be reconciled to you, indeed, that we might be united to you, that we might live in you and you in us. We thank you for your tender compassion and your mercy that you condescend, that you come down to us and meet us where we're at. Lord, I confess and I suspect many of us confess that the law codes in the Old Testament are not the first spot we turn to when we read your word, and yet help us to see that just like the rest of your word, this indeed is your life-giving truth, that it's breathed out by you and that it is good for teaching and for correction, for reproof, for training, Correct us, Lord. Teach us. Reprove us where necessary. Train us that we might be holy and live lives that bring you honor and glory. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ Jesus, who for love's sake became poor, who became a servant to rescue us. Amen.